Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. Welcome to another episode of Five Things. And today we're joined by Erin Davison, who is the cardiac physiologist and team leader at the Cath Lab here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. And she's going to talk to us about five things to do with arrhythmias. Welcome. Hi, guys. How are you going? <laughs> We're good. Thanks, Erin. Um, we'd love to get to know a little bit about you because it's not a conventional role. It's not a nursing role that um, a lot of us will be familiar with and just sort of what your career path's been, what, how you got here. Yeah, sure. Um, so my undergraduate degree was human movements um, with a major in exercise science. Um, that was a while ago. That's um, That career sort of pathways certainly changed a little bit these days. Um, but then sort of fell into my role uh, while I was doing my clinical placement at the Prince Charles Hospital um, and just sort of discovered cardiac investigations there. Um, and then the rest is history, basically. <laughs> I've been in Queensland Health ever since uh, with a little stint at the Marta Kids when I first came out of uni. Um, our cardiac physiologist title um, it's probably fairly new to a lot of people. Um, over the last sort of decade or 15 years, we've been known by the things cardiac scientist, cardiac tech, um, and that can vary across the state, um, across our country, um, and even internationally. Um, we sort of go, go by different titles. Um, but for all those difference in titles, we're all doing fairly similar things. So it's all to do with um, investigations for um, cardiac conditions, cardiac diseases, uh, suspected conditions and diseases. And we work closely with the cardiologists, um, cardiac nurses um, and other allied health in that cardiology sphere. So what does an average day look like for you? Because I literally have no clue about this career. Yeah, so um, there's sort of two main subspecialties for cardiac physiologists. Uh, one is the echo path, so sonography. Um, the other is your electrophysiology or the um, electrical side of the heart, um, which is the one I've gone down. Um, so while a lot of my colleagues under the, you know, that go down the sonographer route, uh, their day will just be doing echoes all day, uh, whereas myself I can um, have a, quite a varied day where I might sit in the cardiac device clinic of a morning checking pacemakers, ICDs, loop recorders, um, dealing with remote transmissions from people's home monitors for their cardiac devices, um, fielding inquiries from various other departments in the hospital about getting checks and perioperative management. Um, and then in the afternoon, I might then go spend time in one of our procedure labs. Um, so as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm the team leader for Cath Lab for our cardiac physiologists. So um, in that space, we do our cardiac catheterizations, um, angiograms, 
um, percutaneous coronary intervention, so putting stents in. Then over in our EP lab or electrophysiology lab is where we do our procedures to diagnose and treat arrhythmias as well as implant cardiac devices. It's so interesting, isn't it, that you can have worked in a hospital for so long and there's still all these professions and areas of specialty that you may not know anything about. And that's what this podcast is all about. So let's just crack on and get straight into the podcast. Your number one is what is an arrhythmia? Uh, So an arrhythmia for us um, working in cardiology is any kind of abnormal electrical activity of the heart. Um, So there's lots of aspects to that that we will uh, consider and investigate. Um, Things about the speed of the arrhythmia, is it fast, is it slow? Um, Is it sustained, is it non-sustained? And um, our sort of criteria for that is 30 seconds. So that might seem um, just a short time, but certainly when it comes to symptoms for patients, that could seem like forever. Um, We look at whether the arrhythmia is coming from the top of the heart, so a supraventricular arrhythmia, whether it's coming from the bottom chambers of the heart, so ventricular arrhythmias. Um, We look at whether it's a left-sided or a right-sided arrhythmia. Um, And then understanding there's different mechanisms that can cause an arrhythmia. So it could be um, certain anatomical substrates, chemical substrates, uh, whether it's a congenital condition or something acquired. So Erin, what I wanted to ask about arrhythmias, because you you do hear of them fairly commonly – um, when people are diagnosed with an arrhythmia, you know, how much should you panic and, you know, can you die from having an irregular heartbeat? Yeah, um, good question. And interesting that you ended that with can you die from an irregular heartbeat? A lot of people hear irregular heartbeat and think that sort of encompasses a lot of arrhythmias and really it doesn't. That's just really just AF. Oh, right. <laughs> just that's sort of the, the language in our world. Yep. Majority of your other arrhythmias we see are all quite regular. So then back to your question, can you die? Uh, in black and white, yes. <laughs> but it certainly does depend on the type of type of arrhythmia, um, how long it goes for, any other underlying conditions a patient may have. And even sometimes what they're doing at the time, you know, things like being up a ladder or <laughs> down scuba diving or something. So you yeah. die you know. from the fall rather than yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of factors um, that can play a part in answer to that question. But certainly if people notice an arrhythmia, they should seek medical help immediately. And if it's your patient, you should do something about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that sort of what you do about it is a broad spectrum. It can be just, you know, if they're completely asymptomatic, having some medication through to the other end of the spectrum where we do need to urgently treat something to make sure that patient doesn't have any morbidities. Right. So your number two is what are the symptoms that a person might see or experience if they're having an arrhythmia? Yeah, so this is very individualised and a wide range of symptoms. Um, Quite often the more common one you hear is palpitations. But even that in itself, from one person to the next, can be completely different um, sensation um, or experience for a patient. So when uh, you say palpitations, mm. does that mean that they can feel that the heart's beating weirdly? Yeah, that's probably the best way of putting it. <laughs> um, and But even in that, like some people um, will say they can then feel it up in their throat, like a tightness, a fullness going up in their throat. Um, maybe it's causing them sort of, sort of back pain that um, 
getting short of breath, uh, dizzy, uh, just general fatigue as well. They may just feel just out of sorts and this very non-descriptive um, sensation uh, can be hard to sort of elicit sometimes the words from the patients to describe it. Hmm. So palpitations, is there anything else that people might experience? Other common ones are the shortness of breath and chest pain. That's a fairly common sort of um, presentation. Patients can make it um, emergency departments when, when they're having arrhythmias. There is the other side of it where they don't actually have any symptoms um, and it can be just an incidental finding, which can be quite phenomenal where you have two patients with exactly the same arrhythmia but experience it completely differently. It's quite bizarre. So it's a very individual experience. You can't sort of say arrhythmias present like this. Um, mm. It kind of, I don't know, I'm trying to draw a parallel. So it's like not all headaches are the same. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Your number three is who is involved in the care of arrhythmias? Mm. So when I was thinking about this to explain to everyone, I ended up thinking it in sort of two different buckets. One is where someone has been seen with an arrhythmia, they're getting ready to be treated, whether that's medication or more invasive procedures. So the people involved there are your electrophysiologists, so they're the cardiologists that have specialised in this uh, field. Um, here at the Royal we have a nurse called our EP coordinator, so she kind of helps guide those patients through sort of those um, treatment pathways, whether it's down the procedure route and um, assisting the, the EP doctor uh, to facilitate those things for the patient. We then have our nurses that work in the procedural labs to assist with those procedures, as well as the radiographers in there. There's us, the cardiac physiologists, and then we will, more often than not these days, have um, our company reps that come in for the 3D mapping software. So then the other bucket is when patients are undergoing all their diagnostic tests for either known or suspected arrhythmias. So they will also probably see other cardiologists, whether it's general or um, interventional, you know, if they need to check their coronary arteries, um, they'll probably come across other cardiac physiologists that will help put on and analyse their Holter monitor recording. So that's sort of a 24 or 48-hour ECG trace. Um, those who may run their exercise stress tests. Um, and then the other set of colleagues will be the staff in the cardiac device clinic. So if patients have had to have uh, cardiac devices implanted to help with the management of their arrhythmias, they'll obviously visit those people as well. So if I, you know, I thought, is my heart doing something funny? Do most people present to the GP in the first instance and then on to the ED or is that very varied as well? Mm, I would say quite varied and it all comes down to those symptoms. And especially when they're the, the more nondescript, like, oh, I just feel fatigued some days or, you know, I find when I'm for the older guys who are out having their golf days, <laughs> they're, they're having trouble on particular days where they can't walk as far as they normally could. Um, I think that sort of cohort goes to their GP um, just for sort of that general checkup. And then there's the other patients who are quite symptomatic um, and certainly for them it could feel like, it's the worst thing in the world that's happening to them at that moment, they will come to ED. So, yeah, it's definitely a varied presentation. 
My dad was recently diagnosed with atrial fibrillation and he had normal a normal heart rate and it was relatively regular um, and his was totally an incidental finding on getting an ECG as part of just a general checkup at, at the GP and ended up going through to seeing a cardiologist and then is uh, essentially just being managed um, conservatively with, mm. with anticoagulant medication added into the mix now. So he's now is that typical old guy that still gets <laughs> up ladders and is on <laughs> anticoagulants. Yeah. yeah. My dad got diagnosed with AF by um, – it was raining so he went to the gym to walk on the walking machine. And you know when you're holding onto the walking machine it gives you a pulse, yeah, yeah. right? And the first one was 220 and he thought, oh, this machine's broken. Yeah. Second one was 220. <laughs> Third one was 220. And he's like, hmm, maybe these machines are off but maybe I should go and get it checked out. Mm. Yeah. That, that yeah. gives rise to a question that I actually had is mm. are you seeing more – or, or just anecdotally um, picking up more people that have their initial things been something they've picked up on their uh, wearable device. Yeah, like I wondered they're that. saying, is that increasing? I would say it is. I probably don't get exposed to that too much because in our role, we're seeing them later up, in the chain. Yeah, yeah, later in the journey. Yeah. But certainly you hear the stories from doctors. Yeah. And I think there's just more knowledge of these arrhythmias and their potential implications. So, Patients are getting a bit more um, investigations done yeah. that they may have not done in the past. Yeah, well, you can do a like semi-reliable ECG mm. on a certain uh, wearable device right. on your wrist. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Name. That's right. Yeah, but that's how my son <laughs> yeah. picked it up. Yeah. Is he was like, oh, something funny going on with my heart, and I just didn't believe him because he was mm. eighteen and he was fit and healthy and he looked fine. He's like, no. I can be sitting down and my heart races. And I was like, oh, rolling my eyes. Like, oh, has it? And sure enough, I said, look, next time, come and show me on your watch. And it was like mm. at 188. Yeah. Pulse. Nope, 188. Ended up getting an ablation. Yeah. So yeah. I, I would imagine that there must be a lot of incidental pickups mm. like that. And there is position papers coming out now from the medical societies guiding how to interpret those readings from those wearables and smart devices. So your number four is how do we diagnose arrhythmias in the EP lab? Like what happens in there? <laughs> yeah, so this one, um, let me know if it gets a bit heavy and you need some things explained. Um, so a patient will um, come in on the day of their procedure. They'll have their usual prep that probably a lot of procedural um, spaces will do. Um, they get changed into a hospital gown. Um, they'll get ECG done. They'll have their consent done. Uh, bloods checked, all that kind of stuff. Um, they'll come into our procedure lab. We'll pop them on our procedure table and for the rest of the procedure, they are awake and we actually prefer that uh, for majority of our cases because it enables the patient then to kind of tell us um, how they're feeling throughout, which can sometimes give us some extra information while we're trying to diagnose their arrhythmia. We access the um, right side of the heart via the venous circulation um, which is generally through the veins um, in their groin. Um, we can usually put up three to four catheters um, that then get positioned at various points in the heart to record the electrical signals um, at those sites. We will then do some baseline uh, measurements, so just um, their resting intervals, and then doing some pacing manoeuvres to ascertain their baseline conduction properties. Uh, then we move into trying to induce a tachyarrhythmia or um, if we're on the side of slow arrhythmias 
uh, trying to work out where is that conduction disease happening um, in the circuit. If we do get some tachyarrhythmias, we'll then do some manoeuvres to try and diagnose exactly what the mechanism is. Part of that, we may administer some medications um, to help with um, tachycardia induction or the diagnosis. And then we also, these days it's every case, um, have some complementary technology with the 3D mapping that enables the doctors to do um, some geometry mapping of the chambers, our voltage maps, timings, um, activation and propagation maps and all these fancy things um, that just kind of give that extra bit of information for us to work out what's happening. For those uh, non-technical clinicians in the room, uh, so essentially someone comes in, in your lab most procedures are done with people awake. I know when my son had it he was absolutely anaesthetised. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you're literally making a cut in the groin and you're feeding something up through those big veins, arteries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, veins. Veins, yeah. Yep. Yep. And then you're watching it on a screen. Like is it is – it So, yeah, we deal a lot with squiggly lines and <laughs> um, sharp spikes and stuff. Um, and if you think of a – you might see an ECG um, and that's um, at a paper speed we call it 25 millimetres a second. That's fairly standard. Um, in the EP lab we actually – increase that speed so we might look at something at 150 or 200 a second it takes a while sometimes for people who are new to the ep lab to train your eyes to still see that and understand that it's normal but that enables us to see all those um minutiae of the electrical um pathways and activations within the heart um to help diagnose those arrhythmias and you're all wearing lead at the time aren't you oh well interesting fact these days, not much, which is kind of exciting. Um, so there, the last few years, there has been a move towards fluoroless um, EP studies, uh, which is pretty exciting. Um, it's a bit of a uh, sort of operator preference at the moment. Um, and that has come about really because the 3D mapping technology has become so good. Um, they can visualise where their catheters are in the heart without using x-rays, it's just using the 3D mapping technology, which is pretty amazing. Um, Quite often, it'll just be our operator who will have lead on um, because he is scrubbed, so it's just in that situation. If if they have to use x-ray, then he's ready to go and everyone else just kind of steps out of the room while he does his quick little picture. Um, Yeah, so don't have to wear the heavy aprons, it's great. So. One thing I'm curious of, so my son was 18 at the time he had to go in for his ablation and he was sedated because they were just with his age and everything, they were worried. Like, why why keep someone awake? Like, I imagine it's quite, it feels quite invasive to just get a local in your groin and then watch everyone go up into your heart and hope that you have an arrhythmia. Why would you put someone through that? Yeah, and, and the chance that they're probably going to get the same symptoms they've come in with if we can get that arrhythmia going. Uh, we are always quite cautious to give any um, sedation um, or, you know, relaxing medications prior to the procedure because that can sometimes mask the arrhythmia and we just can't get it going. If we can't get it going, then we can't diagnose it. So we even like sort of are glad when people are a little bit um, anxious and worked up because that can help just sort of speed the process along and we don't have to artificially... Um, try and induce that arrhythmia and just the stress of going into a procedure will make them go into (laughs) arrhythmia yeah yeah okay (laughs) good luck (laughs) is this an area of medicine that we're about to see just constant expanding technology and intervention that's kind of 
less intrusive, I guess? Um, it is definitely um, an expanding area at the moment. There is so much happening technology-wise. We'll probably – I'll wait and reveal a little bit more when we um, go to our last question. Well, now I'm excited to ask <laughs> about number five. So how do you treat arrhythmias in the EP lab? Yeah, so – uh, two types of therapies that are employed are um, radiofrequency or RF ablation. Uh, so that's, for layman's terms, just heating something. Um, the other one is cryoablation, so freezing something. And look, I might be getting excited about this and I'm sure my EP colleagues do, but it's probably not that exciting for everyone else. But the other therapy that's coming about um, just more recently is called pulse field ablation. So it's using non-thermal means of causing cell death for ablation where there's little electrodes on this particular catheter and it gets placed at the site they want to ablate and high degree of energy put out to cause the cell death. The settings can uh, be tailored for cardiac cells so there's less risk to neighbouring tissues, theoretically reducing some of those procedural risks. So does ablation mean like to burn? Is that what you mean by an ablation? So, yes, historically, when everyone says ablation, yeah, you kind of mean you're just burning something. But the fact is, yeah, you can have um, the opposite, as I said, the cryoablation, so you're freezing something. It's more that you're just affecting those cells or that targeted tissue um, to change its properties in such that you will no longer have that mechanism for arrhythmia. Because ablating means just basically wiping it out, doesn't it? That's yeah. yeah, yeah when you yeah. ablate something, you wipe it out from memory, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very true. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I pick up that maybe your wording's quite specific in how we treat arrhythmias in the EP lab versus how we cure arrhythmias. I'm just mm -hmm. conscious of um, whether that was deliberate or accidental. Yeah, um, it's probably a subconscious thing because that's just the way I've <laughs> been, you know, taught and educated around it. So. For some arrhythmias, we could probably go as far as saying, yeah, we can cure it. Um, and that comes down to whatever the mechanism of the arrhythmia was. So um, you might have heard of things like a bypass tract or accessory pathway um, where there is a, di a discrete area of tissue that can conduct the electrical signals through the heart that's outside of its normal pathway. Um, so getting rid of that little short circuit Theoretically, yes, we should be able to cure it and get rid of that arrhythmia. It won't happen again. Then there's other arrhythmias where the therapies are still really just enough to help treat it. We can't guarantee that we've completely gotten rid of the mechanism or even sometimes the therapy, we've only be been able to go so far um, up to the point where the risk starts to outweigh the benefit and we go, look, we've done as much as we can that this arrhythmia hopefully won't come back, but it might. Hmm. All right, so I'm going to be very brave. This is the first cardiac-nominated podcast I've been brave enough to uh, try and summarise. So that shows you've learnt something on the previous ones. Uh, I, and, I, you know, that our guests are doing an excellent job, but let, let's, let's not count our chickens too early. <laughs> <laughs> so number one, what is an arrhythmia? So it's any abnormal electrical activity of the heart and it can present, I guess, as speed, sustained more than 30 seconds. So superventricular, which is the top of your heart, ventricular, which is the bottom of your heart, and that they can be anatomical or congenital. All right, number two, what are the symptoms of an arrhythmia? And I guess what you really explain very clearly is this is so varied and individualized. 
um, that some people present with palpitations and that can be a whole range of symptomology, but they can present with dizziness, fatigue, uh, non-descriptive symptoms, just not feeling quite right, shortness of breath, chest pain, and then there's a cohort of people who have completely no symptoms of their arrhythmias and they might pick it up on a, on a wearable or, or just incidentally with a, with a general checkup. Number three, who is involved in the care of arrhythmias? And this is a whole cohort of people. This is a really specialised area, I guess, of medicine. Um, so, you know, it could start with the GP or, or someone who, who finds this. But there's electrophysiologists, there's EP coordinators, nurses, radiographers, cardiologists, uh, the halter techs, exercise people who are doing the stress tests, um, and the staff who specialise in cardiac devices. So this, this when you are diagnosed with an arrhythmia or your patient is, you've got to expect that there's a whole new team that you may not have heard of that are going to be involved. Number four is how do we diagnose arrhythmias in the EP lab? And it's venous. So they essentially go up through your groin, they place the catheters to monitor and to potentially treat, and sometimes they're trying to provoke an arrhythmia. So my take-home was, you know, they're going to have a really good look at your heart through a number of mechanisms um, and sometimes they need the arrhythmia to understand and diagnose and then sometimes you can treat at the time. Number five is how do you treat an arrhythmia? And I guess I guess also the thing that I've learned about today is that there's a, a wide range. It can be conservative, it can be through medication or it can be through a device or it can be through a treatment. But in the EP lab... Um, there's an ablation and there's essentially two main types, radiofrequency, which is a heating ablation, or, or cryoablation, which is a freezing ablation. And then just at the end you popped in that you can also have a pulse field ablation, which seems to be some sort of rhythm thing. Is that right? No, it's just like a electrical an electrical ablation is probably a nice layman's term. Okay. All right. Perfect. Okay, so I think you've just done a fantastic job of teaching us five things to do with arrhythmia. Erin Davison, thanks for joining us on Five Things. Thanks. Thanks, Erin. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at 5thingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things. 